Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this special holiday episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with his father Bob Boone who played for the Phillies, Angels, and Royals. They'll talk about the first Boone to play in the big leagues, Brett's grandpa Ray, as well as Bob's post-playing career as coach manager with and against his sons. Boone, a base hit center field. Matty Trio scores. Maddox is going to score, and the Phillies lead it 2-1. to one. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. We've got a very special Christmas podcast for you today. Probably not for me or my guests. We get to talk all the time. But we've got my dad, Bob Boone. Hi, Dad. What's going on? <laughs> Hi, Brett. Uh, nothing, just quarantined here. And, okay, uh, well, enjoying it. <laughs> good. All right, well, we got a lot to get to today and uh, a lot of interesting, fun stuff. But let's go back to the beginning. And I just want you to set up for the audience what, what it was like uh, growing up with Grandpa Ray <laughs> Boone and, and uh, your childhood. Well, ironically, it's exactly like your childhood. <laughs> uh, your mom and I raised you exactly like my mom and dad raised me, and we were around the same exact things, driving <laughs> driving to spring training uh, every January and February, and then heading to where my dad started in Cleveland. And we'd be there. I saw I saw the first. Uh, uh, the first World Series I saw was in 1947. I was uh, I was about uh, a year old. This center, I was about nine, eight months old when 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 Dad played played for the Cleveland Indians in the World Series. I think he got one at bat and struck out, but uh, that was the first one. After that, it was just a lot of baseball for a long time. Well, yeah, he had that yeah. one at bat in the World Series, and because of that, he's along with you is the only other one in the Boone family to have a World Series <laughs> ring. By the way, me and Aaron are still still looking for ours. Um, talk yeah. a, talk a little bit, you know, and and not uh, not enough is made. You know, Gramps was obviously very near and dear to my heart, but talk about Grandma a little bit, and and how interesting of a person, how awesome of a of a of a lady she was and, and how into baseball she was. I still remember, uh, you know, her keeping score at my game. She kept score at every game. Tell, <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, Patsy Boone. Well, I, I can't talk too much or I'll start crying, but <laughs> um, she was, she had a twin, Martha. Uh, Martha's still alive. She's 95 years old. She still plays golf two or three times a week. Uh, they were both great athletes. In fact, her side of the family, uh, the Brown side, uh, had an, an uncle who was a doctor, and uh, he's in the Collegiate Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> and then she was—they played—they played everything. Uh, my 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 mom and her twin uh, did uh, uh, swimming all over the. Uh, all over San Diego, they were in a uh, Esther Williams movie. Uh, they were they were uh, 
synchronized swimmers before you ever heard of, of synchronized swimming. And uh, she was a great athlete. And, and my aunt, her, her sister, was a professional golfer and uh, still been teaching for, she's been teaching golf for 60 years, I think. Um, but it's, uh, you know, she came from a great family. Uh, we had athletes everywhere. And uh, uh, so it's not only grandpa's genes <laughs> that, that got this thing started. Uh, uh, grandma was involved in that too. Yeah, Graham was, she was awesome. She was, she was such the, you know, they talk about the patriarch being grandpa. Well, now you're the patriarch, but Gramps was the patriarch <laughs> and she was the matriarch and she did a heck of a job. Now, Aaron, Matthew, myself, we got to grow up uh, because you played for so long. And we got to meet so many great players through the years. You know, you go from the Phillies with Bull and, and Pete and uh, Schmitty. Uh, you go over to the Angels and... and we used to hang out with Carew and Reggie Jackson and Bobby Gritch and Don Sutton. But tell me about you as a kid growing up with Gramps. When you when he took you to the ballpark, like you took us to the ballpark, who were the guys that, that made an impression on you? <laughs> uh, all of them. Uh, early win when he was with the, the uh, Cleveland Indians, and I was – Oh gosh, I remember going like you guys used to go in the locker room. Uh, we couldn't go into the locker room till till uh, I think there was about 15 minutes after the game, or maybe a half hour. You know, the locker rooms weren't like the ones you grew up in, I grew up in, or, or what they are now. But uh, they'd let us in uh, with the Cleveland Indians. Uh, Larry Doby was the first black uh, player uh, after the first black player in the uh, national league. And, uh, and there was a great first baseman named Luke Easter, who was just a giant man with, with tremendous power. And I, I went into the, into the, into the uh, locker room. I was about two years old and I used to go talk to Luke Easter all the time. And that's uh, some of the things that happened. Uh, but there were so many great players and Bobby Avila was a shortstop and Al Rosen was, uh, my dad and him came up to the minor leagues together. We were roommates for quite a while. He was a great third baseman and general manager of the, of the San Francisco Giants. Um, just so many great players that I started when I was a baby that I look back on and, and, uh, then I got the opportunity to play against so many great players. And uh, I called Hank Aaron's like 600th home run. And, and uh, you know, I was thinking about it today, thinking about all the tremendous players that I got to know and play against and with. It just it kind of blows my mind. And now, I, now I've, I've been with, working for a long time and I'm with, the Washington Nationals now and to see the, the great players that I've seen in 70 years is uh, pretty remarkable. And, and I know I've listened to your, your, your iPad or your, your podcast. It's a podcast, and, and Dad. Come on. It's a podcast. Well, and, and you're, and you're talking to guys that I played against. And, you know, I heard you talking about Molitor 
yesterday, and I'm thinking, man, this guy was so good. And he was talking about how you picked up pitches from the pitcher and the tells that they had. And I knew he had those. And I used to watch him, and I could tell if he moved that front foot like two inches <clears throat> as a catcher, I look and say, okay, he's thinking about something. He wants to do something. He wants this pitch. And uh, and he could do something with it. And, you know, when I was listening to you talking to Molitor, and I was thinking about all those times of me catching and, and the things he was talking about are just so true. And, uh, you know, it wasn't cheating. You just spent all your time staring at the game and learning from the game and watching people and, and, and having pitchers that <clears throat> would tip their tip the pitch was coming and how you had to learn that. And we had a great player when I got called up to the big leagues and with, uh, with the Phillies and I went in and, and we had a, a great player named Tony Taylor who just passed away about eight months ago. And he was a second baseman his whole career. And by the time I got there, he was a pinch hitter. He used to come out of the dugout every time in Philadelphia. He would get a standing ovation. <laughs> and, and and he would hit a bullet up the middle every single time. I remember I Tony, to too. Stand, I, used, I used to stand by him every game, every inning. Between innings, and he, he would tell me what pitch was coming. And he'd watch the pitcher. And I'd stand there, and he'd say, "See that right there, Bobby? See it? You know, he, the pitcher went just below his just below his belt. <laughs> That's a fastball." And he would call all these pitches, and he'd say, "Do you see it?" And I'd say, "No, I don't see it." But but it's uh, he taught me how to do that and helped me survive for twenty years and. Uh, and I learned an awful lot of, from him and an awful lot of players that I played with that you don't know that were great players. Yeah, but I know most of them. Most of them. All right, don't, don't be jumping ahead too did. much on me. You're going to ruin all my questions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I can talk for a long time. I know you can. I know you can. And the Boo Podcast is going to find that out. All right, let's go. You grow. You grow up in Southern California. And I, I particularly love this, but talk to us about you went for, to Stanford, you graduated Stanford, uh, but you went there on a partial scholarship for basketball and a partial for <laughs> baseball. Tell me how that tell me how that came out. Well, Stanford started recruiting me in uh, San Diego uh, going at rest going into my junior year, I guess they were on me. I was a real good basketball player. I was player of the year. Uh, in basketball my senior year and was picked, uh, well, I was player of the year in baseball for two years. And, and at, uh, Stanford was on me pretty good. And I had pretty much decided early on, I was going, going there. And, and the, uh, the, the way, way it happened when I left, when I left San Diego and Stanford had recruited me to play basketball and, uh, I'd actually turned down a, a chance to play football at the University of Washington. But when that came out with football, the first thing I said was no. And, and, uh, but I, they were at Washington, they were going to make me play football and, and baseball. And I just said, I'm not going to play football. And, and I went to Stanford on a basketball baseball scholarship. We got there 
you know, my freshman year, I got there a little early because basketball was already working out. And I was on, then you had, you had to play freshman base, uh, freshman athletics. You couldn't play varsity as a freshman. And what I learned real early on in basketball was, and I was, I was the best basketball player I knew coming out of San Diego. And when I got to Stanford and at college level, I realized after about three weeks of, of working out that uh, I was going to probably be the third forward on the freshman team. And I didn't have very far to go. And so I went into Coach Dalmar after a couple of weeks and I asked him, I said, do you think it'd be all right if I quit playing ba- basketball and, and just play baseball? <laughs> he tapped me on the back and said, that'd be no problem. <laughs> get out of here really <laughs> and, and uh and then as i watched basketball at stanford when i was there you know i was in the same class with lou alcindor uh and uh all those great i was in the same class with those all those guys that came up at ucla when they were unbelievable and i, I would go in and watch a game in the old stadium or the old uh arena was a small gym and, and in fact Stanford ended up breaking their 60 game streak at one time uh, and I watched I watched Lou Alcindor Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, come into the gym and duck to get through a through a uh, a door and I was sitting in the stands and I looked at that and said there's no way I could have played in, in that era in that uh in, in that game. And I did the right thing by getting out of it as sad as I was to, to leave basketball and, and play football because uh, it let me know right away that, uh, no, this was the wrong sport for me. All right. A lot of people don't know this and, and it's quite, you know, I guess I've always known it and I've never really thought about it, but it is, it's pretty unique. Grandpa got to the big leagues as a shortstop. Played short third base, but he was always <laughs> a catcher. And a lot of people don't know this. You played 19 years in the big leagues. You won sol- seven gold gloves as a catcher. But you were always a third baseman, and they turned you into the catch. It turned you into a catcher. Tell the audience about that. Well, it goes back even to high school. I was a really good pitcher in uh, at Crawford High School. And uh, when I went to Stanford, they had really recruited that year, huge baseball uh, and huge uh, uh, swimming, actually, uh, that year. And, and I, I didn't have to pitch. They recruited a bunch of freshmen, uh, great pitchers, three of them t- pitched in the big leagues. And so I didn't have to. I was, I was very happy I didn't have to. And I played third at, uh, at Stanford. And then my senior year, I was a year young for my class. So unlike you and Aaron, that we straightened that out. Uh, When when the June draft came along, I was too young for that class. So I couldn't get drafted as a junior. And a lot of about five players off that Stanford team got drafted that were my same class and signed professionally. And I couldn't do it. So I had to come back in my senior year, which was a great blessing for me. And I ended up pitching that year, uh, pitching and playing third. 
and uh, and had a had a really good year at Stanford. Was twelve and I was twelve and one, and uh, had the second lowest ERA in in history at the time for a Stanford pitcher. Yeah, and uh, when I when I got drafted after my senior year, Eddie Bachman, the the the, uh, the, the scout that signed me. He came to the house to talk about signing, and I asked him if uh, – I said, did you draft me as a pitcher or third baseman? He said, third base, and I said, good, then I'll sign because I wasn't going to pitch. I didn't want to pitch anymore. Uh, and and so I went out to play, and it was my second year. I, I'd had some funny things. I got I got called into the Army in the, in the height of Vietnam as a reserve, and they took that – that year away from me uh, it was it was during that that season so I was in the army when I came back I went to instructional league and they asked me if I would catch and I always thought well I, di- I didn't want to catch because I thought I could be an everyday player in the big leagues and I thought when they said catcher to me that meant I was going to be a utility player and uh, and so I told her I talked to grandpa and uh, and I came back and said, I'll try this. I said, if it comes to me quickly, I'll, I'll do it. But if not, I, I want to stay a third. And luckily for me, <laughs> it did come quickly. And, um, and I became a catcher. And, and the, the irony of it is that Gramps was a catcher his whole life in the, in the minor leagues. And when Lou Boudreau was a great uh, manager and shortstop for Cleveland Indians, when grandpa came up, they, they turned him in over that summer, uh, or that winter from a shortstop. I mean, from a catcher to a shortstop and he got called to the big leagues and took over for Lou Boudreau at shortstop for the Cleveland Indians that year. And, and, uh, and he never caught, he never caught again. And I, I played about 20 games, I think in the big leagues at third, but, I became a catcher, so it was a pretty uh, unique setup that that really happened. And and uh, Gramps went on to be a third baseman of the Detroit Tigers, had great power, and uh, led the league one year in in RBIs with the uh, uh, Detroit uh, after he got traded. And and so he became a third baseman. <laughs> I became a catcher. Yeah, it, it's. Uh... No, it's it's quite unique, and and you did a you did a favor to Schmitty, so Schmitty didn't have to turn into well, a catcher. Well, there's two <laughs> stories to go on with catching. People would ask me in Philadelphia, "Why did you become a catcher?" And I said, "Well, there's a few things. I pitched. I was around baseball my whole life. I had a really good idea of how to call a game at a very young age, and and how to how to pitch, and use the pitch selection and what it was all about, and." Uh, and so I, I had that going for me when I started catching. And what I tell most people is that I was, uh, I was, and I always thought that I would become a catcher because I was incredibly fast for about three feet. And after that, right, I was three gonna feet, say, I was incredibly that. slow. And that kind of affected your range at third, but it really helped my range behind the plate. And so the move with that uh, Paul Owens, the general manager at the time with the, with the Phillies, when he made that move, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me in my career. No question. 
All right, let's talk about the Philly days. You played there. You, you broke into the big leagues in 1972. And I remember those Philly days because those were, you know, my young childhood years where I got went got to go to Veterans Stadium <laughs> a lot. So in 1980, you guys win the World Series. And and I mentioned it earlier on in the in the podcast was, you know, it was Schmitty and Bull and Boa and Lefty and, and Tug McGraw. And I, and I remember – so many days sitting with Manny Trio in his locker, helping paint the glove. That's probably why I ended up being a second <laughs> baseman. But uh, you win the 1980 World Series. Pretty awesome. I remember it vividly. The party afterwards. But uh, let's talk about that famous play. They play it every year. And, and it's the play uh, where it's a pop-up in the final game. Right. You go down a right field line. You drop it. And the hit king, Pete Rose, is there to pick you up. He gets all the credit for it, but I like when you tell the story. <laughs> well, this is a story. I, I, I get around to it several times. First, I want to go back to one other, because I get two stories that I have to tell all the time in Philadelphia. When people ask me about uh, me going to catcher, uh, I tell them, they'd ask me what, what made me decide. And I said, well, you're really lucky I decided to become a catcher. And they'd say, why was that? And I said, well, I'd been a third baseman. And if I'd have stayed at third, we'd never know who Mike Schmidt was. So, That's right. So that was one of the stories. And the other one was, hey, tell us about that ball in the, in the late innings of the, uh, of the World Series with the, the day we clinched to win the World Series from Kansas City Royals. And, and it was a ball hit <clears throat> pop-up, high pop-up down the – first baseman line actually toward the dugout and the story is that as a catcher there's about a 45 degree angle behind you as a catcher that that's your ball on any pop-ups anything outside of that you would look as a catcher you'd, you'd chase the ball but if it was on the right on the left side it would be Pete Rose's ball if it was on the right side it'd be Mike Schmidt's ball because it's very much easier for a for a player coming in on the ball and seeing an angle of, of, of the ball than a catcher who gets right underneath of it. And, and so in that game, the, the pop-up was hit to the end of the dugout. And for anybody watching the podcast, if you ever see this on, on TV, look at where I am. And I'm running after this ball, and I'm waiting for it. I'm not calling it. The catcher's not to call it the infielder calls it and and I got left so far it's at the end of the the Phillies dugout and I'm chasing it and I'm chasing it and I'm waiting I'm trying to listen for Pete Rose to call me off and as I get near the end I know it's close to the dugout and I don't hear Pete and all I'm thinking about is where is Pete call me off call me off and and I'm getting close to the dugout. And all I could think about is, you know what? I'm going to go for this ball. Pete's going to hit me, and we're both flying in the dugout. And as I get down there, that's all I'm thinking is, where is Pete? Where is Pete? Now I'm getting to pretty close to the ball where it's like, I know I can out-rebound him, so I'm just going to have to go for this because I don't hear him. And down comes the ball. I, I go to sketch it, pops out of my glove. At that moment in my life, I wanted to kill Pete Rose. And all of a sudden, I see in front of my eyes, his glove come through, and he catches it. 
And it was one of those stories of, of well, you're asking me that story from 40 years ago. And, and all I could think about when I dropped that ball, I wanted to kill Pete. When, the, when his glove came through and he caught it, I wanted to kiss him. But the moral of that story is that Charlie hustled my ass. I'm the one that hustled on that play. <laughs> so that, I'm sticking with <laughs> and, and that. That's, and, and that's the part I love. For a long time. <laughs> All right, so we move on. You, you, 80 you guys win the World Series. I remember the parade. It was like it was yeah. yesterday. It was fun. I mean, that's one of my childhood memories that, that sticks with me. But then you go on to the Angels and – you know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, too, you played with Reggie and Carew and Sutton and Baylor and Gritch. How were those years with with the Angels? I remember 82, and and like you mentioned earlier, we had Paul Molitor on. And he talked about playing against you, uh, the Brewers, in 82 in the playoffs yeah. with, with the Angels. Yeah. You never won a series there, but a lot of great years, and uh, you were a part of, of Mike Witt's no-hitter. Talk about the Angel years a little bit. Well, the, the Angels years were fantastic. The, the Phillies years were we were we got put in the big leagues kind of early, and the Phillies teams have been losing a hundred games a year. And when I went there that first year, I got called up following my my uh, really my one full year that I caught in in Eugene, Oregon, in AAA. And in fact, one of my one of my uh, uh, big moments was that. In that, in that last month, Mike Schmidt and I got called up at the same time. And Schmidt and I were really good friends, and we kind of came up together. And in that, in that first year, that first month, I guess, I was, I was catching, and I hit a home run in that first month that I was called up, and Mike Schmidt didn't. And so one of my big, my big achievements in life was that I led Mike Schmidt in home run, career home runs for about four and a half, four and a half months after that, he kind of passed me up and, and he went crazy. But, uh, that was, that was one of the great, uh, times for us. And, and at that time we were a very young team and Paul, Paul Owens put us together. Uh, we had the great Steve Carlton at the time, but he brought Schmidt up myself, Larry Bow was, you had a year and a half in the big leagues. Mike Schmidt, I mean, uh, Greg Luzinski had a year in. And then Paul Owen started adding to that team with uh, Greg Maddox in center field. And, and he started doing things that allowed us to keep that team together for 10 years. And after about four years at, in Philadelphia, we became really good and very young. But we were the we were the we were really the best in the in the Eastern League, in the National League. When I went to California, it was the exact opposite. Um, Gene Mock, who was a tremendous manager, had put together a team of veterans, and we were all kind of on the, the backside of our careers. But every every place we had, it was just a great player. With Doug DeCenzi's at third, and uh, – uh, Oh, Freddie Lynn and Baylor, and we have so many guys there. Brian Downing in left field, uh, Rod Carew at first base, uh, Reggie Jackson in right field, and we were we really knew how to play. 
I know you experienced that when you went to Atlanta. It was like, hey, wait, we're coming to spring training. We're not doing a lot of stuff. We're just getting ready because all these guys really know how to play. And that's what we experienced. So that's what I experienced in California. It was a team that really knew how to play. <clears throat> they knew how to take pitches. They knew how to get a tough walk and a tough, tough game at the end of the game. Uh, and it was really uh, – it was a different team from the Phillies, but it was a great team, and the Phillies team was a great team. And it was just you went from being – playing as a young player and learning the game to a team that really knew how to play the game. And it was uh, a tremendous time for me and both and really in my whole career I had the opportunity to play in, play in those kind of teams. And, and in California, we couldn't get over the hump and win in that – that playoff game. Uh, we needed one more pitcher, actually. But uh, it was a time with those uh, fantastic time. And I know I know you got to experience it, too. You and Aaron, you'd be at the ballpark every night. And, and in growing up in Philadelphia, I got – they were tremendous. They let, let you guys come into the park with me every day and go shag in the outfield, which you just, just doesn't happen anymore. And it was a time when uh, I know I'd, I'd want to go to the park and, and your mom would get mad at me because you guys weren't home from school. And if I went if I went to the park before you guys got to home from school and you didn't get to go to the park, uh, there was hell to raise when we got when I got home that night because you guys oh, that was, were really upset. Yeah. That was my worst nightmare. And and then when I was playing and and. You know, you start to realize as a player, it's like, yeah, I'd love to have my kids around the game. It's it's great for them. It's such a unique experience. But I got to go to work here at some point, and I, I can't worry <laughs> about you guys causing havoc. But, uh, yeah, what a childhood I had. Okay, you move on yeah. to the Royals, and – you know, I, I've mentioned a bunch of names for each team. These are these are names that stick out to me and guys that I remember. And I remember Sabe, Saberhagen, and George Brett. But yeah. the, the most intriguing guy on that that Royals team uh, was Bo Jackson. And, and I've heard you talk about him a lot. You're you're one of the the guys that can talk about him uh, because you played with him and and you have real unique experience. Tell the audience a little bit about yeah. Bo Jackson. Well, Mo was probably the greatest athlete, certainly one of the, of a small number of tremendous athletes that that played sports in America. And, you know, since a tremendous football player, and he had such skills in baseball. And Gene Mock would call me, he would check in on me once in a while when I was in playing in, in, uh, in Kansas City. And he asked me one day, he said, uh, Hey, uh, how's that big guy? And I said, you mean Bo? He said, yeah. He said, could he play for me? And I said, I hesitated for a while. I said, Gene, this guy is such a, a great, great athlete. I said, but he really doesn't know how to play. And I said, but he's so great that his skills overcome everything. And when I had first got there that first year, <clears throat> we had a drill where they put all the, all the, players you'd, you'd line up three deep leading off of second base and we had uh, uh bobby schaefer <clears throat> was a coach and he would stand there just behind the the mound and and you'd line up you'd take your lead off of second base 
and he would hit a fungo and he'd hit a ball in front of you or behind you. And you had to react. So if, if the ball was behind you, you'd go to third. If it was in front of you, you had to go back to second. Well, the only guy in that group, <clears throat> when when you get in it, and, and Bo would be one of those three guys standing in line, when he swung it, every time, he would go to third. <laughs> and he never went back to second. And the fact is, he made the right play because you never could have got him. And he was he he had a he had a gear in there, you know. You'd see him run in the bases, and he'd look back, and there's going to be a play at play at uh, his base, and he'd just look back and go, "Oh, I've got to run a little faster," and he could. And he was the greatest left fielder I ever saw. And he he could in left field. He had such a tremendous arm that <clears throat> any base hit the left of the runner on second. The third base would hold the guy up every time. It wasn't even a thought of him trying to score the runner. And then when you'd have a left-handed hitter up and he's in left field, they'd hit a little pop-up down a third baseline. And I'm telling you, Bo Jackson would be standing there on every ball. You see it a lot of times in the big leagues. That ball will hit and the guy gets a double. With Bo, he would be standing underneath it and catching it every time. <laughs> and I remember, uh, Brian, when I when I went there at the end, uh, they moved Bo to center field. And I went into John Wathen was the manager, and I went in and I said, what are you doing? How are you putting him center? He said, well, Bob, he's going to be the center fielder because Willie Wilson was there, and Willie Wilson was older. He was like me. And uh, he could really go shag it still in center field. He was a great center fielder, but he didn't have a great arm. And and so the, the Royals wanted to move Bo to center field. And I said, are you kidding? I said, he stops every run from second base. If it's hit the left field, you can't move him to – and he catches everything that goes even close out there. And uh, so we got a little – discussion that night about about moving Bo to center instead of keeping him in the left field but he was he was such a tremendous player and and uh uh you know when before I got there when I was with the Angels uh he was real young there was a play hit ball hit the center field Bo's on second base as a catcher in those days I would always step behind the plate and I would kind of analyze it like okay, he's going to try to score. This is going to be a close play at, at the plate. And I'd get myself set up to not only protect myself, but if there's going to be a crash, I always felt like I'm coming out of this crash. The other guy's not going to. And this one day when Bo was real young, there was a ball hit the center. I look at it and I'm going, oh, this is going to be a close play at the plate. I get all set up, ready to block the plate. And Bo's got me beat by about a foot and a half. So I stepped up from first base and I caught the ball and Bo went by me. And I never had anybody run that fast or that big behind me as a, as a catcher. And all I thought was, Holy cow. That was like a Volkswagen just drove by me. I said, that would have really hurt. That crash right there would have really hurt. And I've always remembered that. And I know you've got a you've got a story about Bo coming into you at some point that you might want yeah. to share. Well, uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna get Bo on the I'm gonna get Bo on the okay. podcast and, and I'm gonna share it with him then. But 
I'll tell you. Yeah, I do have a story. It's a it's a great story. Uh, I played. I, I got to play against Bo in a in a. Uh, he was on a rehab. This is after the football injury, and I was in Double A, and we were in Birmingham, and, and he came down to rehab. And I'll, I won't reveal the story now, but all I can tell you is everything you said is is <laughs> is true. This guy, you had to be on the field with him to feel. <laughs> his physicality. I've never been on a field. I've been on the field and so have you with just tremendous hall of fame, physical players, but, but Bo's a different animal. And uh, yeah, so you, you kind of have to have been there, done that to really appreciate what he brought on that field and the presence that he had. All right. So you, you finish your career and uh, you jump into managing. And uh, your first gig is in Tacoma, which is AAA. Uh, it's in the Pacific Coast League for the, for the Oakland A's. And I got a chance to play against you. And I, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. I think I used to crush you guys, the Tacoma Tigers. Yeah. But my real question is, what did you learn about managing that as a player? And I know you kind of had aspirations as a player at the end of your career that, well, one day I, I might manage. What what did the what did managing what did it what did you learn about managing that you didn't know or or surprised you once you got into that that arena? Well, I guess not, not so much surprised me. I know Paul Molitor in your last podcast was talking about um, helping everybody, and when you have a background like Paul Molitor had, like I had, where I had to learn everything about pitching and, and catching and calling a game and hitting and looking for uh, no one to watch. A big thing I always taught players is you got to watch the game, watch everything that happens. When I managed in the big leagues, I would tell my coaches if there was a big play with kind of chaos, I would always tell my player and my coaches, watch the back, watch, watch the last guy. Not where the action is. Watch the other one. Watch what's happened. A lot of times, a third base coach, when there's a play at the plate and everybody's arguing, he's going to tell the player on the field what to do right now. Like run as soon as you you know you could see him not needing signs, and that's something that I really learned. I spent my whole life learning, watching the pitcher and watching the tells. Uh, I know Maltor talked about it in his podcast. Is is that you were learning, you had to learn how to watch the game. I know you and I talk about it a lot, and, and it's this pitcher will tip his hand. A lot of times he'll turn the glove one way, and you know that's a curveball. He'll, he'll, he'll bring the glove down a little further for the fastball. Uh, there are so many things that you really had to learn by just watching. And I told the story about Tony Taylor teaching me how to, how to pick up pitches from the pitcher. And I, I think at the end of my career, I probably knew half of the pitches that were thrown to me before the guy let go of the ball. And I know uh, talking to Tony one year uh, or early in my career, he said, and he was getting older, he said uh, he probably knew 75% of the pitches that were thrown before the pitcher let go of the ball. And that's just from watching and watching and watching. I had the same thing when throwing guys out at second by, by watching the guy at first and reading him. I had a great knack of throwing out Richie Henderson and I mean, uh, Ricky Henderson and that he was 
well, the greatest baseball base stealer in the game. And, but I knew how to read him. And, and, uh, so I was, I was pretty much knew when he was going to run and when he was not going to run. And those were the kind of things that you try to share with players as they're coming up and at that lower level, because they don't understand how to, how to read the situation when you're hitting to know, get an idea of what this guy's going to, how he's going to pitch you and, and what happened the last time and, and which player in the, in the lineup is, are they pitching this player just like they're pitching me? And you get, you get a feeling of, of what, what the pitcher was going to do to you before you stepped in the box. And those are things <clears throat> that are really hard to teach, but those are the, the extra things that are beyond how to, field a ground ball, how to throw it. Uh, but you have the same thing in, in spending a lot of time with catchers in teaching them how to call a game and, and set up the sequences. Because the whole thing in pitching has to do with sequences, not only great stuff for the pitcher, but how do you set these pitch these hitters up? And I got to play against some great hitters, and you talk about it all the time. Uh, when you're going into bat, you're going to, you're looking for, you know, what this, you've got a good idea what this pitcher is, how he's going to pitch you based on the last time you faced him or when you hit a home run against him and what they were going to do. And those are the fine, fine things that quality major league players know how to, how to read. And yet it's really hard to teach. And I spent a lot of time teaching those things or talking, I don't, know, I don't know if I taught them, but uh, talking about those kinds of things, the real insides of baseball that in the minor leagues you really don't know. And those are the kind of things you have to learn to become a great big, big league player. And, and not all the big leaguers know how to do that, but a lot of them do. And, and the real good ones, they know how to, how to do that. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's what makes them really good and great players. And I found myself teaching that a lot, which kind of kind of goes beyond, I think, what what you think of as a manager doing. And I found myself teaching those kinds of things a lot and talking to players about that a lot. Uh, a lot of difference from from worrying about yourself as a player and worrying about the whole team and the front office and the deals you're going to make and how this guy's coming off the disabled list or, and, and, uh, Hey, when, when do we put him in? We're going on a road trip. Hey, this guy's going to be ready on Wednesday. Who do we want to send down and, and who do we keep here? And he should be ready to go into a game. And those are the, the real unique things that <clears throat> as a player, I never really spent a lot of time thinking about those things, but it's, it's so much of, of talking to players and knowing which guys that I've got to talk to a lot and which guys I'm going to leave alone. And, uh, you know, it's all about getting the players on the same page and, uh, and getting them to play with that heart that, that uh, it takes to win a World Series. So in and, and this, I got a little bit of a story, and it's, it's kind of cool. Um, I get traded, so, so – I get to the big leagues after playing in the PCL and uh, I get traded from the Seattle Mariners in 1994. And I think I was at your house at the time, 
for some reason, but I, I got a phone call. You know, to, to those out there listening, it, it's it's kind of protocol when you get traded. You usually get a call from the general manager of the team you've been traded to. And usually the, the skipper at the time gives you a call. And I remember in 1994, I, I, I got that call or after the 93 season that I had been traded to the Cincinnati Reds. And I got a call from Davey Johnson, who was the manager there. And he did his typical, hey, Brett, welcome to the Reds. We're really looking forward to having you. And then he says, oh, by the way, is your dad around? And I kind of thought, why is he asking about my dad? Well, I know you had played with Davey. But I ended up putting you on the phone. And after your conversation, you said, well, he he offered me the bench coach job with the Reds. (laughs) And I'm telling you, as a young kid, I'm sitting there going, oh, no, come on. My dad's going to be following me around on the – but I'll tell you, and I tell this story today, uh, it was one of the greatest years I've I've had. And and it was was awesome. The way you came in, you were the bench coach. But I tell people all the time because they want to know what's it like when your dad's the bench coach. And, you know, I didn't get to – I'll get to that later about I never played for you as a manager. But I said, you know, you would think – that it would be a nightmare. I said, and it was one of the the most pleasant years I've ever had. I said, dad, when we hit that front door of the clubhouse was as professional as they came and it was coach player. And that was our relationship. And then, but the, but the perks that come with that is we got to on an off day, we could go have dinner together. But uh, I, I appreciated that the way, the way you kept your professionalism and it made it a very comfortable situation. And, and I remember at the end of that season going, no, dad, being the bench coach, it was no big deal. It's just he had a job to do. I had a job to do. And it was a very professional relationship. We've always worked really good together, uh, you know, father, son, but coach or mentor player. <laughs> you go on and you get to manage the Kansas City, Kansas City Royals and Cincinnati Reds, and you got to manage uh, – Aaron, who is it? Yeah. Our relationships are different. We all have really good relationships, <laughs> but you know, for people that don't know, my, my brother Aaron is very different than I am. We're, we're oil and water, and we have a different relationship with our father, both real good relationships. But it, let me put it this way dad and Aaron tend to butt heads a little bit more than, than <laughs> dad and Brett. Uh, but tell us what it was like managing those days and managing your son. That, that's something that not too many people get to do. Well, for me, it was tremendous. It was tremendous when, when I coached and you were there. And, and uh, because in growing up, I didn't get to see a lot of your games. I didn't get to see a lot of Aaron's games. I didn't get to see a lot of Matthew's games. And uh, it was, for me, it was like, wow, this is awesome. I get to watch every one of my kids' games. And, and yet – you're in a position where, you know, especially when I was manager and Aaron was player, it was like just the way you explained it. It's like, okay, we're father, son all day coming in. When we get into that, when we that door opens, nope, now it's, now it's manager and player. And I had to be that way with everybody. It was very easy. Both of you helped me do that, made it very easy on me. I always felt, that Aaron had the toughest time because, you know, there's so many things going on all the time. Who's going to make the club? What are you thinking about? Uh, who's going to be the last two pitchers on the, on the team? 
who's going to be your last two players on the on the 25 man roster and Aaron knew he never asked me about that I never told him about that I never told you about that uh, and and you know I always felt when I was a manager it was really tough on Aaron I always felt that it was great for me because I got to see you guys but for for Aaron when you're the manager I just I just could could realize all the other players were going to him. Hey, what are they going to do? What what are they going to do with this? Are they going to send this guy out? Who are they going to bring up? Uh, what's the roster going to look like? And all of those things. And and Aaron knew not to ask me. I knew not to tell him. And and he did a great job of keeping that that uh, uh, that advantage, I guess, that he, he people would have thought he had. Uh, and keeping it under his hat. And I always thought it's got to be really tough to exist when you're one of the, one of the players and you're, you know, and guys are coming to you asking you about what this, what's this team going to look like or what's he doing? And, and uh, uh, why do you, why do you have a hit and run there? Or why, you know, I always felt that that was, uh, that was really tough on the player. It was, it was really easy on me. Uh, and for me, the, the greatest thrill I got, was to sit there and actually watch you guys play for a whole year every night and get to see them. And there's not too many dads that get that. I mean, they experience it with the little league teams and, and as their kids are growing up, but when you're actually together doing that, uh, that's so unique in baseball. And for me, it was, it was tremendous. I always felt like, okay, when I'm watching a game, I'm a dad. When I'm running the game, I'm a, I'm the manager. And I'm in charge. And but uh, for me, it was just a, a tremendous time for that. And then, uh, <laughs> and then being able to help you out when you got confused, <laughs> and you really took it right away, and you you get straightened out. Aaron would want to fight me over it and say, well, "What do I know?" And so we did have two different uh, two different relationships going all the time. And. I want to I want to throw in one thing of that relationship it goes way back because <clears throat> the two of you played in the big leagues. Your third the third brother Matthew uh, got to touch Triple A and played about six years in the minor leagues. And <clears throat> and when Aaron was being born, uh, we knew the date that they were gonna they were gonna. Uh, uh, my wife, your mom was going to be give birth to Matthew. And oh, it was yeah, it was year, Matthew, I was going to say. In, in 1979, and I was getting to start the All-Star Game, the National League. And I had to talk to, to Sue about, hey, you'll be all right if, if uh, you know, your mom will be here for you to, to uh, give birth to Matthew, and I'll take Brett and Aaron, and we'll go to the All-Star Game where I'm starting the game and one of the highlights of that game. They did sure we didn't have all the pomp and circumstance that they have now, but and this is for the podcast is that Aaron, Aaron, how old were you, Brett? 12? No, you were about 79. I had to be 11. Or no, Aaron I was 10. Was about I was 10. Eight. Yeah. And, and uh, Tug McGraw had caught, had taught Brett and, and Aaron, because they're at the ballpark every day, had taught them how to shag. They would go out in the outfield and shag during batting practice. 
And Tug McGraw taught them how to catch a fly ball behind their back. And now I'm taking them to the, to the all-star game and I'm having to tell the press, it got to be a thing that, Hey, Bob Boone's here and he's starting the game in 1979 in Seattle. And he's got his two kids here and his wife is giving birth in, in Pennsylvania or in New Jersey to his third son. And I got some, a lot of hate mail for, for quite a while about that. But the highlight of that, that game was you and Aaron shagging balls in the outfield by the fence all over the place and catching balls behind your back. And it was probably the highlight of that game because there's a lot of people in there watching batting practice and they see these two midgets out there catching, <laughs> catching balls behind their back. And, and that was a, a great, uh, that was a great evening for me. And, and this year I was, I've never worn a, a ring and, and I've got a Philadelphia world series ring. And this year I got the, uh, to share in the, the world series ring of the Washington nationals. And someday somebody wanted to see the ring. And so we've got the, I've never worn a ring. So we've got them in the safe. We bring this thing out and there's, 10 different rings in there that I had no idea that I'd won or was awarded over my career. And the 79 ring from, and I got a 79 ring from the all-star game that we won. And I gave that to Aaron on his birthday. Oh, to Matthew. Big thrill for me. I mean, Matthew, I'm sorry. I I gave Matthew the ring because that's the night he was born. (laughs) It was in 1979. And, and, uh, it was a tremendous thrill for me. But, uh, that's part yep. of the being around your kids all the time and in baseball, and they were around the, the game as much. And, and you guys were raised exactly like like Grandpa uh, was there when I was growing up. It was the same thing, although, although you guys got to go on the field a lot more than I did. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, you know, now I've got kids and I'm raising them and I'm at the ballpark and I take how, how I was raised by you. I, I, I kind of take that lead. And when I go to the ballpark to watch my sons, it's, you're not even going to know I'm there. I'm not going to be that parent. That's this and that. It's <laughs> right. like when my yeah. kids have a question, they'll ask me a question and that's how we handle it. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's the best way to handle it. And, and to that ring, I, I remember you were going to give Matthew that ring and I remember his birthday was coming up and uh, I was talking to Maddie about it. And I said, Matt, you got one of the coolest, unique birthday gifts coming. And he's kind of looking at me like, well, what is it? I said, dad's got something really cool. That's all I can tell you. And I remember I, I that's one of the neatest gifts I think anybody could get. And, and uh, you know, Maddie definitely appreciate that. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Yo. What uh? What's it like now watching? Well, we call him Uncle Aaron in my household, but watching <laughs> Aaron manage the Yankees. I know me and you talk a lot about it, but uh, you know, I'm 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 awful proud of Aaron. He's done he's done a hell of a job in his first uh, three stints. His first two years, he won over 100 games. What's it like as a dad now watching his son manage? Well, I when Aaron, of course, Aaron was did a great job with ESPN and announcing all those years. Uh, but Aaron went, he got invited to interview for the Yankee job. And, and, you know, it was, it was more of 
I think Cashman inviting him in to say, here, I'll give you some experience of what, what has to happen. And honestly, I thought Aaron's going to win this job because I knew what Aaron's like. Everybody loves Aaron. And Aaron has a demeanor of making everybody feel comfortable around him. And I thought he's going to win this job. And, uh, and he did. And it's very, very unusual with no you know, managerial experience at any place. Uh, but he got to watch all the games with uh, ESPN. Be, be fully uh, have full knowledge of all the players because how much studying you have to do to get into the game, you know, to, to call a game from, from the uh, booth. And, and uh, he had a good handle on what has really changed in the game in this analytics part. And he had to know about all the analytics part from, from being a, an ESPN announcer and, you know, in, in a time right now, especially all the people from my era, which which is, you know, I'm 73, so so I, I'm definitely an old timer. But when I talk to run into all the people that I played with and younger, and they'll they'll get into the the new analytics game, and I knew Aaron had a had a great feeling for this, uh, whereas me and all the other people all the way down to your age, uh, looks at it and go. No, we're losing the game here by by doing that. And and uh, Aaron had a great understanding of it, and he's got a he's got a great gift of making pe- people feel very comfortable around him. And I and I've always felt he'll be magnificent at this. And I think so far he is, and he's he's got a lot a lot more to do. But uh, I think I really felt he was going to get that job. It didn't surprise me at all. All right, so now you're in the unique position, being a well, not unique. This has never happened before. Uh, I, I know how it was for me as a grandson, um, you know, with with grandpa getting to watch me and my climb and my quest. Uh, but you're in a little different position. You get to watch my son, so you're yeah. the grandpa of a possibility. <laughs> no, no pressure, Jake. But uh, <laughs> you know, there's never been four. We did the three. We were the first to do the three. But now Jake's the, the, the first of out of all your grandkids that's in that position. There's more grandkids, but Jake's the <laughs> first one that's of age, uh, is, is now playing professionally, about to go into his first spring training. Um, talk a little bit about that, how, how cool that is as Gramps. I, I know it's really cool as a dad, but I think <laughs> as you get older and you can tell, I mean, sentimentally, uh, it's pretty cool for you and all you've seen starting with grandpa through yourself through Aaron, Matthew, myself, but now you got a, a grandson. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, what we've done as a family is pretty unique. We were the first three, three generation family in the history of, of major league baseball. And then my brother, Rod got to triple a played about six years, Matthew, he touched AAA. He played about six years in the minor leagues and didn't get into that uh, the big league sh- spot. And now we've got really – I keep looking at it. we got one left here, and we still got a couple more kids, and Aaron's got some kids that have a chance. But Aaron, but Jake's in the, in the best position of trying to be – we would be the first family with four generations that played in the big leagues. And 
as I've told him, he signed with the Nationals where I work, obviously, and and uh, he signed with us in a position of saying, look, and what I've told him, I said, look, Jake, you should sign with the Nationals because most of the people in the minor leagues, I've had something to do with hiring them. I said, you're going to be taken care of by these people, but <laughs> it doesn't matter they can't do anything for you. It becomes, how do you hit? How do you throw? How do you play? And nobody else can help you. There'll be a lot of people trying to teach you, but but uh, you have to do it on yourself. It's one of the unique things about playing at a, at a major league level, it really in any sport, but there's no gifts for, for that. You've got to earn it, and he's got to. And, of course, we're all pulling for him like crazy, and he's a talented kid. That uh, that has all the makings of, of being a major league player, but he's going to have to do it. But uh, I was so glad when he signed with the Washington Nationals because <clears throat> he's going to be in a situation where there's made a lot of people trying to help him. And you know, I think one of the <laughs> biggest things that you could ever imagine is to be part of a family that had four generations in the major leagues and. You know, the, the idea of us being the first three generation is, is unbelievable. But the thought of getting the fourth one is, is like unimaginable almost. Well, and I, and I think about it all the time. And, and I, was, I remember being asked day after day when I was coming up. And, <laughs> and it didn't bother me at all. But I, right. but, but I think it's, it's up to the, the individual. It's up to the individual's personality. It's not the same for everybody. And one of the funniest stories Matthew tells me, my youngest brother, is Matty was actually the highest drafted uh, boon yeah. out, of, out of all of us. So he goes yeah. to the minor leagues, and, and Matty didn't make it. And, you know, I have a really good relationship with all my brothers, but Matty, I tease him a little bit. He, he gives it back to me. But he said, Brett, you know what I've been doing lately? When people ask me, hey, why didn't you make it? I just flat out tell them I wasn't good enough and they don't know what to say and they move on. And I thought that was, that was a funny way of handling things. Um, yeah. Jakey's going to have a, you know, he's going to have a, he's in position. He's got a chance. Now it's, it's what he does with it. All right. I get yep. to, uh, I want to play a little, little game and we're going to go, you're going to speak for grandpa. I'm going to go <laughs> grandpa's grandpa's generation. Who would Gramps, if he were here today, would say is the best pitcher of his generation? Uh, well, there's there's a bunch of them. Uh, I was thinking but Feller, it, but I don't know. I wanted to get your take. It's got to it's got to be Feller. It's got to be Feller. You know, and I, I used to ask him about that. He pitched. There were some great pitchers on the on the Cleveland team. I remember I was in spring training. And I got to go over as soon as school was out, I'd run over to the spring training and he'd ask me, Hey, you, you want to hit against this guy? They'd be taking batting practice. I'm standing there. I said, Oh, do I? Yeah. Let me in there against, <laughs> against uh early win. <laughs> I'm going, yeah, let me, I want to, yes, yes. <laughs> he'd get me right up to the cage and then he'd say, no, you can't go in there. And I, and I go, why not? I can go, I can hit this guy. <laughs> and, uh, but, <laughs> but it has to be feller. Uh, you know, All right. Bob Feller was the best in that era. All right. Gramps era, once again. Who would Grandpa, if he were here today, say the best hitter of his era? I think I know the answer to this, too. Wow. Um, 
Ted Williams for sure. There you go. All right. That's what and, I figured. You know, I wasn't Ted sure. Williams, I wanted to let... Well, Ted Williams, quick Ted Williams story. Ted Williams went to Hoover High School in San Diego. And and uh, he was a, a ultimate star when he was in high school. And my dad, uh, Grandpa, went to Hoover High School, was about four years behind Ted. But he said all the kids, they'd ride their bikes over to the games, the high school games, to see Ted Williams swing the bat. They knew how great he was at that time. And uh, and my and Dad got to uh, he got to play in finish the season with Boston. Actually, it was a locker next to Ted, um, and uh, that was kind of a big thrill for him. I, I remember asking him one day, Ted Williams, when he retired, you know, he hit he was hitting like three forty. And Gramps was telling me, uh, he's, I said, how can he retire? He was 41 years old or 40. And, and, and Grandpa said, well, shoot, he get out there. He might have a heart attack out on the field at that age. At that age. And so, <laughs> but, but he had tremendous respect for, for Ted Williams. And there's probably no doubt with anybody's mind that he was the last guy to hit 400 in, in the major leagues. And, and everybody had tremendous respect for him. All right. Now this is for you. Uh, best pitcher in your generation. <laughs> well, I, 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 see, I kind of know the answers to these. It's not as okay, it's not the best that pitcher fair. for Go me ahead. was Seaver. Best pitcher okay. for me was Tom Seaver. And I had tremendous respect for him, became very good friends with him. And I got a, I got a thing in the mail one day. Guy sent me all this stats about you, Aaron, me, my and Grandpa, and uh, it was every home run you hit against so and so. Who hit you hit the best? The most hits that I got in my career, like one pitcher was against Tom Seaver, and I looked at, it, I went, "Holy cow, this, this is impossible." Then I thought back about it. I said, "Well, ten years with the with the Nationals." He never missed a turn. It was always Seaver and Steve Carlton. So you never miss Seaver. So I imagine that I had the most at-bats against Seaver than anybody else in baseball during my career. And I don't know what I hit, but I probably hit 230 against him. But I, he was just so great and, and could just dot the ball and throw a slider that was ridiculous and and but I but I get a hit against it. It's like he'd let me get a hit against him. But if you put the guy on second base in a tough situation, he'd just crank it up and it was like, I got no chance. I got no chance. But he was he was for me the best and I got hit hit and play against an awful lot of great ones. But for me Seaver Seaver was the best and um he just uh I don't, <laughs> when I was a rookie I'll tell you this quick story. Seavers pitching against the Phillies. And this is probably one of my first or second times facing him. And he used to be able to throw this pitch down and away. He'd start real low and actually bring it up. The ball would come up and they'd just dot the edge. And uh, he threw a pitch to me, and it's probably three inches outside. Strike, strike. The umpire called a strike. I step out of the box. I look at the umpire. I said, that ball's not a strike. I said, I can't even reach that ball. And he looked at me and he said, Bob, that's Mr. Seaver out there. (laughs) 
Take back the umpire and say, well, why don't you, if that's Mr. Seaver, why don't you take this bat and hit against him and I'll umpire this at bat. <laughs> but he was, he was, a, he was the greatest, but the toughest for me, not even close was Phil Necro. And I couldn't hit Necro with a tennis racket. <laughs> I used to, I used to get up on top of the plate as close to the plate as I could, hoping that he would hit me. Cause I just, I would know that four days from now we got, we got Necro and it'd start giving me a headache. And at times I'll wake up in the middle of the night dreaming. I he threw me a knuckleball one day that's, that did a curlicue all the way in from the way it's, from the time it left his hand and just spiraled in to be in a strike. And I, I couldn't touch him. He was definitely the toughest guy for me to hit, but see, we right, who's and I, Who's the best hit hitter? And you got to stick to your generation. Best hitter you played against or with? Wow, that's that's uh, that's pretty tough. That's pretty tough. I got to play with so many great and against so many great hitters, great players. But I'd I'd probably go back with Rod Carew. Uh, you know, just just so many. It's it's not fair to put one. That thing with Carew, I got to play with Rod. <clears throat> with the Angels and and G Mock could get mad at him because he could have hit twenty five homers, but he was he was there to hit three eighty, and he was just he was remarkable and he'd change his whole swing from pitch to pitch sometimes and, and he was he was amazing to watch because he was hitting three eighty nobody hit three eighty then and uh, but the, you know I got to play against so many great ones and, and uh, you know you got to throw George Brett in there and. Uh, Molitor and uh, Tony Gwynn. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't think there was anybody better than Gwynn either. But boy, it's true. When I think about those, and I think about, you know, when when I look at my career and I got to play 19 years, and think think about the players that I played with, but the great ones that I got to play against, it's just it it kind of boggles my mind uh, when I start just thinking about different guys and how great they were. And when I was, when I was writing this question, I was thinking about my, my answers for my generation Man, so many pitchers that were so good, but uh, I came up with for my generation, Greg Maddox. Yep. Day in and day out consistency nobody was better there was a lot of great pitchers randy johnson pedro for four or five years was as nasty as you know someone that's not mentioned that much kevin brown but i'm gonna go with maddox and the best hitter i ever saw for my generation it's not even close and that's barry bonds okay now i'm gonna go to what would grandpa say the greatest hitter he's ever seen you mentioned during his time it was Ted Williams. What would he say is the greatest hitter he's ever seen? He would be fighting you about Ted Williams, no question. No question. He, he would be fighting you about Ted Williams. He'd give you he'd give you all the other guys. I mean when you when you start thinking about it, you know, and you ask that question and if you really sat down and went from team to team, not only team to team, but you know, when you're playing nineteen years you think how many people you've seen and how many great ones are. And when you've got a label number one, you know, that's, that's pretty tough. But he would, 
he would give in to bonds. I think I really think he would give in to bonds. And, and people, people that don't know, it's like for Ray Boone, the the <laughs> the most. Oh, he, he's the most loyal <laughs> fighter for his yeah. generation of anybody I've ever met. No but question. I think you're right. All right, what about you? Greatest you've ever seen, and you've seen bonds. a lot, yeah, huh? Bonds just. Well, I got to manage against Bonds too. And I'd walk him. Right? I'd be standing on the thing, and you know, for a guy to walk 200 times in one year and, and hit all of the home runs in in in, uh, in San Francisco, hit him out in the in the water. You know, it's like a few guys hit one or two their entire career. He hit all of them into the into the water. He was just unbelievable, and I'd have to walk him on purpose a lot as a manager and he'd be running, he'd be trotting down to first base and look over at me and I'd look over at him, just shrug my shoulders and say, what do you want me to do? I can't pitch to you. You're too good. Yeah. He, he was really unbelievable. And if, and if everything goes perfect and the planets line up, uh, maybe one day we'll have Jake on the show and we'd be able to ask him (laughs) who, who the toughest of his generation was. Well, Dad. <laughs> yeah, I hope, uh, hope I get to live around that long. Well, Dad, I, it was a pleasure having you on, and we haven't given a shout-out to the most important Boone, and that's Mama Boone, Sue Boone. My mom, <laughs> my dad uh, raised three great boys um, that they're all very proud of. Uh, really awesome <laughs> childhood for us and i appreciate you having coming on and love you guys to death now i gotta throw one thing in oh here he goes here he goes dan's dying (laughs) to come on but no dan hold it you realize she's hung out with me for 53 years i don't know how she does it (laughs) i don't either she did it it's exhausting (laughs) no All right, go ahead. All right. So what we do here at the end of the Boone podcast is we bring the voice of the Boone podcast, Dan Levy, in for a question from the fans. Dan, we got you. You got me, buddy. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm feeling good, Dan. What? Give me a tough one. I've been listening to all these. Well, you're you're, you're family of the shows. I don't know how how tough I'm going to throw it to you. But Don from Kansas City wants to know, Bob. Who was the hardest pitcher to catch in your career? Well, you know, when pe- people ask me that, the, the greatest I caught was Steve Carlton. No question. Uh, but people had asked me that, and they want me to say Steve Carlton or some great ones. <clears throat> My answer is always the same. I said, I don't even know their names because of the tough ones were the guys that didn't last. And, and it's because, you know, I'd put down a sign down and away and this ball would be five feet from the spot that I, I wanted him to throw to. And those were the toughest guys. They didn't last long, but they were the toughest ones because, you know, the great ones, they just threw it in your glove. It was a piece of cake. And, uh, and the tough ones, though, were, were all over the place. And, and uh, uh, I don't even know their names, but there was a lot of them. Well, Bob Boone, we want to thank you for coming on to the episode of the Bread Boone Podcast. You are welcome here anytime you'd like. <laughs> it was my pleasure. It's been great listening to you guys do all these. I think it's uh I think you got something great going on here and and uh 
it's really been a joy. I've, I've listened to all of them so far, and it, uh, they keep getting better. Hopefully, this is one of the better ones, but <laughs> they keep getting better. I really enjoy <laughs> listening, and I hope, uh, I hope there are some fans out there that, that uh, fall into it and realize uh, the, the, the great thing that I'm hearing with Brett's getting way better and he's having <laughs> conversations with people that if you were a fan, you would never hear him have the same uh, kind of conversations that he could have with, uh, with junior and, and, uh, and the insight that they got into that you're getting into on these things. I think I really enjoy uh, listening to them. I think you guys really have something going. Well, the key has always been this. The less I talk, the better the podcast gets. So that <laughs> that's where I've kind of stood with it. <laughs> well, you just bring it in and bring it out and do a great job. So, uh, I'm a good drawer opener, too, at home. Better. Well, and the help he's getting to do this, I think, is it's really showing to me. I mean, I've just seen – Brett growing a lot into this, and, and it's a, a real pleasure to listen to him. I, I find all of the podcasts very interesting, and I think I think pretty soon there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be looking forward to the podcast. Well, it sickens me because the guy was a freaking all-star, gold glover, silver slugger. I spent 20 years in broadcasting, and he's just as good as me. So that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, if he gets that Dan, bad, come on. You, get, you always got your voice to fall back on. We don't have that. We don't have that. That never got me a shoe. That never got me my own shoe. Well, you know what it got me? A good diet. All right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to hear stories from what you have and anybody who can shine lights on, uh, on Brett and even share some embarrassing stories. That's what I'm signing up for, sir. So thank you so much for jumping on the show. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. You ready to roll? I'm ready to roll. So excited, Dan. Let's do it. Let's rip into the Christmas stocking, shall we? And the first one is from Mike from Bakersfield. Brett, who who was a better little leaguer, you or your brothers? Not even close, me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. What made you so much better than them? No, it's no, it's just it's not a matter of opinion. I'm not being uh arrogant or anything about it. It's just a fact. A- ask the other two, they'll let you know. Let's get them on. All right. Number right. 2. This one is from Cam in North Carolina. Brett, how do you pick your bats out and what size did you use? And do you still have any left last time you swung a bat? Uh, I do have a, yeah, I, I do have a few My, ones that are kind of uh, mementos for me. Uh, but how I picked it out, I, I remember getting in the minor leagues from college baseball and remember looking for the, what, just what looked good to my eye, well, what felt good in my hand. And I remember that first that first night, my first professional game, I looked for the lightest bat. Because coming out of college, you, you know, you're, you're swinging aluminum. So now you're going to wood. Uh, and I landed on a pretty popular bat, probably the most, uh, most common bat in, in Major League Baseball history. It's called the C-271. It's George Brett's model. It was Rod Carew's model. It might have been named after Carew, actually, the Carew 271. Um, 
Griffey ended up using it, and uh, I think Alex Rodriguez used it. But but it was a it's a pretty common bat, especially in the minor leagues when they only had about three or four different models to choose from. That's how I chose it. Uh, the size was thirty four inches, thirty two ounces. All right. Now your final question. Jerry from Atlanta wants to know. Should I get my 10-year-old hitting lessons? What do I look for in a hitting coach? And since I'm the one paying for it, does a former player make a good coach? Uh, not always. Uh, you know, I, I would I would hesitate to say. I think uh, lessons and and uh, advice and and experience can always help. But but going into the lesson, know what the objective is. The objective is you're not going to turn little Johnny into a big league player. If the goal is to, to let your son be as good as he can be, I'm all for it. I think hitting lessons and, and getting with the right guy can be a real positive thing. Uh, if your goal is to make him into something that he wasn't born to be, well, then I, I think you're barking up the wrong tree. So in the right situation, sure. I think uh, hitting lessons and guidance can be a positive thing. But uh, to go in with the right intentions. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody who went ahead and sent questions down the Brett Boone line. And by doing so, they went at him at Twitter, at the Boone 29 He's also on Facebook and Instagram. He is the former Major League Baseball All-Star. Golden Glover, and Silver Slugger. He is Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. We'll do this again very soon. Have a happy holiday, and we'll talk to you guys on the next one. See you, everybody.